but I think often we do put a lot of emphasis upon causation of sexuality, causation of, um, of homosexuality, not just kind of those outside the church, because as people who are outside the church, they, they look at, well, okay, if you're born gay, then, then it's okay, then we sh- it's, there's nothing wrong with it. But also within the church, because I think people say, well, if we can find a cause for being gay, then somehow, you know, we can, um, you know, fix it or something. But, um, you know, one is looking at the nature side, that it's, it's biological, it's genetic, and the other side is uh, nurture, that, that it's part of environment, it's how you're upbringing. Um, and, and ultimately, I think there's a little bit of imbalance on both. But this next hour, I want us just to look at what science has to say about this question, nature or nurture. And then after we look at that, we want to look at kind of what does the Bible, what does theology have to say with this issue of homosexuality and specifically about the causation of homosexuality. So nature or nurture. I want us to, uh, as we look at the, uh, oh, if, if you have my notes, they, um, I don't know, some people are passing them out. If they ran out, um, you can get this. This is a shortened URL. You can get my PDF file there, the digital file, so you can just write that down. Um, or you can kind of scan this, this QR code here to get my uh, PDF file. But the etiology of homosexuality, um, etiology is just a kind of a fancy way of, of saying causation. What is the cause of something? Sometimes etiology is used in the... In the in the sense of diseases, and I'm not at all looking at homosexuality as a disease per se, but I'm just looking at uh, this term for etiology of what are some causative factors for homosexuality. So I don't see that homosexuality is somehow a pathology, um, but it is uh, something that we could possibly look at for what could be some causative factors. Um, There have been several studies that have been... um, uh, th- that have shown up, and um, I want us to first look at studies that focus on biology. Uh, well, as we look at many of these studies, I'm, and there's tons of studies, I'm going to kind of group them together, and there's three basic groups of studies. first group is looking at twins, twin studies, and twins, the reason why you would look at twins is because uh, identical twins, they share the identical genes, right? You guys remember that from Biology 101 or whatever. Identical twins share identical genes. So if you compare kind of some phenomenon or some characteristic in twins and compare that to uh, identical twins and compare that to fraternal twins and compare that then to uh, siblings, if there's some type of percentage difference, then there is most likely some genetic cause or genetic link. I'm sorry. So there was a study done by Bailey and Pillard, the first one done in 1991. And he did a study of twins, identical twins and fraternal twins, on and compared them. How, what was the percentage when one twin w- was gay that the other twin was gay? And what he found was that 52% of identical twins, when one twin was gay, the other twin was gay as well. Uh, and, you know, we would think, wow, that's, that's a pretty high number, 52%. But I want us to note, if we're trying to prove that it is 
purely genetic, um, what would that number need to be or close to? 100%, right? So we see that it's not 100%. So to say that it's that is purely genetic, uh, we, we can't say that even with this study. So it's not 100. Another big problem with this study that Bailey and Pollard did was um, when he advertised and sought out participants for this study, he strictly did it in the gay community. So he went to Chicago to uh, you know, what we could, would call Boys Town, which is right around Wrigley Field, and he put out signs and posters and kind of advertised in these gay magazines. So if that was done, would you think that those numbers would be representative of our culture or our society here in the U.S.? No, it would most likely be high, a higher number. So uh, we see that the applicant pool was biased. So um, Bailey and Pollard, he, or Bailey realized that, and so he did another study. Uh, Bailey, done in Martin in 2000. I, I don't know what happened to Pollard. Maybe he fired him. Um, and uh, Bailey, done in Martin, did a study in Australia. And what he found was also fairly interesting, was that he found that 30% of identical twins were both gay. When one was gay, the other one was gay as well. Uh, but what was very interesting in this study was that this, um, this study uh, was, could not be replicated. The results, though you know, it, it was still you know, considered pretty high, uh, it couldn't be replicated. Because for scientific studies, for it to be um, reputable, is you need to be able to test it again and you need to be able to duplicate it. So if you did a study and you found this result, I should be able to do that same study and be able to find the same results. And if I do, then that means those results are legitimate. But if, I did, if someone else did this study and no one else was able to find the same results as I did, then, then those numbers are not as legitimate and don't have as much weight. So no one has ever been able to do the same study and been able to find 52% or even 30%. Bierman and Bruckner in 2002 tried to do the study again, and what they found um, was quite different than what Bailey uh, Pollard found or Bailey Dunn and Martin found. When they did this study, they found that it was only 6.7% when one identical twin was gay, the other one was gay as well. Langstrom, Raman, Kolstrom, and Lichtenstein in 2008, this was actually the largest twin studies test done in, um, in, in, in all of history, but this was done in Sweden. Um, and they looked at 3,826 twins, both identical and fraternal. Their results that, are, that were published, uh, it was kind of interesting to read because um, some of it was actually kind of hard to understand. But what they were looking at was not um, when one was gay, what was the percent? That's called concordance rate. Uh, but what they were looking for were maybe specific um, causative factors. What they found, and this was published, was that in men, 34 to 39% they think was attributed to genetics. They think 0% was attributed to shared environment. Uh, and about 61 to 66% is uh, attributed to individual specific environment. For female twins, they believe 18 to 19% was genetic. 
16 to 17 percent was shared environment, and individual, individual specific environment was 64 to uh, 66 percent. So we might think, okay, that's, that's kind of interesting, um, but what does that all mean? And um, the, uh, what was um, a, an interesting quote that we find from, from, this, uh, from these researchers was that they said, although wide confidence intervals, and I'll explain to you in just a second what wide confidence interval means, they say, while wide confidence intervals suggest cautious interpretation, the results are consistent with moderate, primarily genetic, familial effects and moderate to large effects of the non-shared environment, meaning social and biological, on same-sex behaviors. Um, and what is confidence intervals? What, what does that mean? Well, confidence intervals, and, and let me explain a little bit. I, I forgot to mention this toward the beginning. Um, kind of the reason why my interest in, in talking about this is, you know, before I came to Christ, some of you guys remember my story, I was studying to be a dentist. And so being really familiar with the health sciences and to science and, uh, you know, biology and all of this, I, I kind of, you know, was really familiar with statistics and all these different types of studies. And, and a lot of times people ask, well, are you ever going to go back and get your doctorate? And, um, you know, unfortunately, God's kind of put me in a different direction. Uh, so people are like, oh, that's such a shame that that's been put to waste. But I see kind of now how God is allowing me to use all that background that I studied in graduate school and the health sciences and biology and pharmacology and, and um, you know, uh, all of that, you know, anatomy and some of that to be able to use that science to apply that to understand what this is talking about, you know, because for most seminarians or people that study biology, you know, science is kind of like, you know, something really, really foreign to them. Um, but to be able to kind of understand that and to put it into kind of layman terms is something that I feel burdened to do and, and help people to understand some of these studies. So that's kind of my background and, and why um, I feel like I'm, I'm able to kind of teach on this. Um, so what is concordance rate? Well, concordance rate, um, um, I'm sorry, what is confidence interval? Confidence interval is, is looking at... Um, what would be the low end when you're giving some statistics or some estimation? What would be the lowest end of what the number could be and what the highest end of the number would be? What these um, uh, researchers, um, Langstrom, the numbers that he gave was most likely what we would call median. Median, another way of saying that is average. Uh, so what he didn't give is like right here, genetic, 18, 19%. That's, what, that's probably most likely the, the median. But confidence interval is more what's the low end and what's the high end. And if, if you guys would just assume, for a study to be really um, reputable or accurate, would you want wide confidence intervals or narrow? Narrow. I mean, naturally, you would want it to be within a few percentage points, maybe if it's really accurate, within a few tenths of a percentage point, right? Wouldn't that seem more accurate? Well... Look at how wide these confidence intervals are. Genetics, 0 to 59%. What do you think about that? Is that narrow or wide? Or pretty stinking wide? 
okay? <laughs> That's pretty stinking wide, okay? The shared environment, zero to 46%. I mean, you've got up here 60%, I mean, more than even 50%. And then shared environment, pretty much almost the same thing. And then again, individual specific, 41 to 85%. It's kind of like, you know, a blind man trying to, you know, hit, hit a bullseye. Well, I guess an Olympian did that. But anyway, regular blind people um, trying to hit a bullseye. Um, so, you know, we see that these statistics are just really, um, it, it's hard to say that uh, it's, it's extremely accurate. Um, so, amazingly, uh, you know, they, they didn't put that in their uh, press release. Um, what I was interested, most interested in, was to see when one twin was gay, what was the percentage that the other twin was gay? Remember, we were looking at 52%, and it goes down to 30%, and then someone else said it was about you know, 6%, um, and then Langstrom, uh, this study. I want to see when one twin was gay, what was the percentage that the other twin was gay? Well, they didn't publish that, and so I had to actually go in and look at the numbers and kind of do my own math. And what I found was very, it was very interesting. Only 7 out of 71 pairs of men, when one was gay, the other one was gay, and MZ stands for identical twin monozygote. Uh, and then for women, 26 uh, out of 214, when one female was gay, the other one was gay, um, you know, had same-sex partners. And what was interesting is they didn't say, are you gay or not, because they wanted to be sure that the way that they asked the question, it was not very biased. Because when you do that, are you gay or not, often people say, oh, this must be a study on sexuality. And so that can then kind of maybe skew the results. Uh, some of you guys might be familiar with statistics as you want to do studies that are often kind called blind. You guys remember that? Blind studies or double blind. What does blind mean? Anyone know? That, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So a blind study would mean that, that the person doesn't know, like, okay, if you're taking a medicine, uh, and they're doing you know, some type of pharmacological study, uh, the person doesn't know if they're actually taking the medicine or you know, a sugar pill, right? I mean, they don't know. So that would be a blind study. So, so that way, because uh, you, know, you could have that placebo effect even by just taking a sugar pill. Um, a double blind study, though, would then be even the researcher not knowing if this person is taking the medicine or the placebo, and, and the only way that they would know is at the very end that you know, the numbers are given and, and they find out who is taking what, et cetera. But, so that's why they put in here same-sex partners. They just ask a general question among a whole list of other questions. Have you ever had a same-sex partner? So even this, these numbers might be inflated, right? Because we know people who experiment who aren't necessarily gay, but maybe when they were younger they had a uh, homosexual um, experience. So even these numbers, I think, could be a little inflated. But it's not 52%, and it's not even 30%. So in conclusion, we find that at least this study, that we find that confidence intervals are way too wide. We do find that environment does play a role. Uh, biology probably has some factor, and genetics might have some factors. But it's hard to say, and we can't say that it's purely genetic or purely biological. Another group of studies is brain structure. Simon LeVay in 1991 did a study, then he looked at the hypothalamus. Why? Because the hypothalamus is believed to play a role in the sexual behavior of animals. Uh, and this, uh, this man, he studied, Simon LeVay, he studied 
uh, looked at the size of different groups of neurons in the hypothalamus, the INAH1, 2, 3, and 4. And he looked at 41 cadavers, 19 gay men that died of AIDS, and 16 presumed heterosexual men. And why did I say presumed? Because um, before they died, they didn't say that they were gay. And it would be kind of hard to ask them now if they're gay or not, um, because they're cadavers. Um, and then six presumed heterosexual women. One died of AIDS as well. What he found in this study was that uh, the INAH3 group of neurons appeared to be three times or twice as big um, in the presumed heterosexual male group when comparing to the gay male group. Well, remember when I talked about how a study, for it to be reputable, it needs to be um, something that could be replicated. Unfortunately, they tried to replicate this study by Tobin and Matthias in 2001, and they could not replicate the study. They couldn't find the same. They, they saw that there was no statistical significance between the size of the INAH3 group of the hypothalamus, between the heterosexual male group and the homosexual male group. Simon LeVay, who himself is gay, said, says this quote, and I think it's really important. It's important to stress what I did not find. I did not prove that homosexuality is genetic or find a genetic cause for being gay. I didn't show that gay men are born that way, the most common mistake people make in interpreting my work, nor did I locate a gay center in the brain. Since I look at adult brains, we don't know if the differences I found were there at birth or if they appeared later. So... Um, I think Simon LeVay was really honest with his findings. Um, unfortunately, other people have kind of misinterpreted his work. Uh, the third group of studies that I want us to look at is um, looking at chromosomes. The first study was done by Hammer, Hu, Magnuson, Hu, and Petitucci in 1993. And they studied 76 gay brothers and their families. And what he noted was that gay men had more gay relatives on the mother's side of the family. And since that that was a phenomenon that he uh, noted, he then studied the X chromosome. And why the X chromosome? Those of you guys that are genetics, that's the, that's the chromosome that the, the mother gives. The father gives the Y, right. So, um, so therefore, they studied the X chromosome uh, in gay men. And um, what was interesting was uh, they found that in 83% of the gay men, they had a similar allele. Allele would be kind of a portion of the distal region of the X chromosome, or the XQ28. This was popularly, but inaccurately dubbed, the gay gene by media. Some of you guys might not have been around in 1993, but I remember in Time Magazine, it was on the front cover front cover of the Time magazine, and it said, oh, we just found the gay gene. Hammer, again, who's gay, clarified, and he said, environmental factors play a role. There is not one single master gene that makes people gay. I do not think we will ever be able to predict who will be gay. And probably most damaging toward this study was that Hammer, Dean Hammer, did not have a control group. Why would we want a control group? Variable, exactly, and, and compare, right? So if Dean Hammer was studying um, gay men and looking at their X chromosome, what would be the control group then? Heterosexual men, good. 
Well, if, let's just say, I mean, he didn't have a control group, but let's just say he, he, he did have a control group. He looked at heterosexual men, and he looked at their X chromosome, and he found the same findings, that they all had this similar allele. What would that do to the results? Throw them out, because all guys have the same you know, part, so it doesn't really mean anything. And so unfortunately, um, he didn't do that control group. Uh, people tried to replicate it. Bailey, remember? We see that name before, Bailey and Pollard, and also Bailey, Dunn, and Martin, uh, who did the twin studies. He tried to do this study, and he couldn't replicate it. McKnight and Malcolm in 2000 also tried to do the study, and they as well could not replicate it either. Um, so that's kind of the studies on, um, on some, not all the studies, but some of the studies that are often quoted on biology. Let's now look at the studies, some of the studies on environment. Um, are there any studies that might point to uh, possible environmental factors? Because often people say there's no proof that um, environment plays any role. Uh, well, as we look at the twin studies, remember Langstrom and others, that, that one done in 2008, that he studied those twins, the, the largest twin studies test. Well, he showed that genetics might have some factor, but remember those numbers, the, the, the confidence intervals were really, really wide. Um, if we were to take his results at face value, um, genetics might play into it, but he says that both non-shared and a shared environment might play some role in the development of homosexuality. So uh, Langstrom and others showed that there could be moderate effects. Also, Kendler, Thornton, Gilman, and Kessler in 2000 looked at American twins, and they believed that familial factors might influence uh, sexual orientation. Other familial factors, um, uh, other studies that looked at familial factors, such as maybe a close mother, distant father, possibly. Um, sometimes people say there's no studies. There were some studies done. These are just a list of them. Uh, some of these are from long time ago, so might not have the same string stringent uh, kind of, uh, you know, scientific uh, you know, expectation that, that we have today, but there were some that are done a little bit later. Um, and, uh, and then we have in 2007 a study done in to, uh, Taiwan that looked at the military, and they concluded that paternal protection and maternal care uh, was determined to be the main vulnerability factors in the development of homosexual males. Um, other studies that were done look at childhood nonconformity, and fraternal birth order, looking at rural versus uh, urban, and other cultural and societal influences. Okay, so I've just kind of presented a bunch of information, and I'm, uh, I want to kind of critique them. And, and I kind of critique some of the um, biological, um, but I don't want to you know, leave the environmental studies um, unscathed either, because I think we, can, we need to be able to look critically at all information that we get. Um, the studies on environment that I, I just presented, um, one, I think, weakness on, in many of these studies is that uh, often we confuse correlation with causation. Correlation, then causation, with causation. Um, causation is pretty obvious. That's one factor causes or brings about another factor, or even one or multiple factors bring out some other aspects. So clearly a cause 
an effect. Correlation, on the other hand, is not necessarily um, cause and effect. Correlation could be that there's some type of relationship. Correlation um, could be uh, positive where one increases, the other one, um, other one increases, or it could be negative when one increases, the other one decreases, or the, one, the other one decreases. You know. So there could be some type of relationship, and we don't know what that relationship could be. It could be causal, could be effectual, or it could be indirect, or it could be completely coincidental. We don't really, really know uh, what, what is that relationship, but we, there is some type of relationship. Uh, so correlation does not necessarily mean causation. Let me give you guys a, a good example of um, correlation and causation. There was a study done in New York, and um, they looked at um, kind of you know murder rates, and what they found was uh, when people of New York, when they, when people of New York, when they ate more ice cream they found that there were more murders. You might think that's crazy, but that's actually a fact. This is an actual study that was done that when they looked at uh, when people ate more ice cream, when, when, when more ice cream was consumed in the city of New York, the rate of murder also went up at the same time. Okay? Now... Does that mean automatically that it's causation, that one causes the other? No, I mean, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, we though see there is a correlation, right? There's, when one goes up, the other one goes, goes up as well. And there's another indirect factor that plays into it. And what's that indirect factor? Summer, heat, good. Summer, okay, heat. So during the summertime, what's going to happen? We love ice cream. I mean, you're not going to eat ice cream during the winter. I mean, I guess you can. But I mean, most people, you know, there's going to be more sale of ice cream during the summer and people are going to consume more ice cream. But at the same time, in the city of New York, during the summertime, murder rates went up. You know, I mean, I don't know, maybe murderers during the winter, they hibernate. I don't know, you know, what is the reasons, but they're out on the streets more and, you know, causing more trouble. So the rea reality is correlation does not mean causation. Okay, does that help? So uh, we find that actually many of these studies that look at environment, many of these, I think, are showing some type of correlation. But is it causation? We don't really know. We don't, we're not exactly sure because causation is much harder to prove. Because for you to have causation, you have to have a control group. Remember we were just talking about that control group? Or you have to have double blind or blind, or you have to have, um, get a representative sample from, uh, that would represent you know, the, 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 the whole population or um, you would get a large sampling, and you might have to do a longitudinal study. So, I mean, you see, it's, it's not easy to actually prove causation, but to show correlation, it's much easier. Um, and, um, you know, so oftentimes people say, well, you know, what about this um, absentee uh, father or, uh, you know, dominant mother? You know, isn't that the cause of... Um, you know, homosexuality. Well, 
the problem, I believe, with that, to say that that is the cause, um, is that if that is the cause of homosexuality, we should then be able to go into a community where um, that is kind of the norm, where we have children that are just raised just by their mothers or by their sisters or by their aunts, and the fathers are often just completely distant or out of their lives, such as in urban communities. Exactly. Urban communities, that's kind of like the norm. And so if that is true, that homosexuality, the cause of that is an absentee father and a dominant mother or, or, or being raised just by your mothers, then we should be able to go into urban communities and find this huge increase in homosexuality. But we don't. We don't find this enormous increase of homosexuality. Is homosexuality present? Yes. But is it greater than that in other communities? No. But what do we find? We find in the urban communities where maybe um, drug use may, might be more prevalent, um, heterosexual promiscuity might be more prevalent, gangs might be more prevalent. And so I think really what we're looking at is more correlation that when you have children that aren't you know, they don't have a father around, and they might be just raised by a mother, that's not a really healthy, or it's not as healthy of ha as having both parents around. And what happens then? That then kind of opens up the door for other situations to come in where, you know, other addictions or rebellious behavior or whatever issues for it to, uh, to come out. Uh, so I think in, um, in those situations that I don't think it's necessarily causation as we're looking at dominant mother or um, absentee father as a cause, but maybe more, uh, more correlation. Well, how about kind of critiquing studies on biology? Studies on biology. Um, you know, it, we, I think one problem at looking at uh, the studies on biology is it's hard to really uh, see that there is, um, you know, when we're trying to do scientific studies, um, how do we show that someone is gay? How do we prove that someone is gay? And really, ultimately, there's no way of showing that someone is gay. There's no test for homosexuality. You know, have you ever thought about that? There's no x-ray, there's no MRI, uh, there's no blood test, there's no CT scan for homosexuality. It's strictly a self-declaration that someone says, I am gay. You know, and, and I think we need to respect people for that. If, if they don't tell us that they're gay, don't assume that they are gay. Um, you know, if they tell us, then, then uh, we do respect them for that and, and say, you know, but but really, there isn't a, an empirical, objective way to show that someone is gay. There's no phenotype, as we would say, um, in the health science world. Um, and also that uh, we don't see that there is this um, biological... Um, and, and when I say that, that there could be a biological factor for homosexuality, um, I want me to be clear, because I believe that there could be a biological factor, just as there may be, or factors, there could be also environmental factors, but when I say that, that's not the same thing as saying that someone is born gay, or that's, that it is innate and fixed, because to say that it, someone is born gay, or someone, that it is innate and fixed, that means that it is 100% biological, and is one, or 100% genetic. Um, but just to say that there might be a biological component doesn't mean that it is, um, I'm, you know, that we're saying that someone is born gay. 
Um, and, you know, ultimately, w when people are kind of asking me that question, well, do you think people are, are you know, well, I think that people are born gay, uh, you know, and, and that people say, well, we've already proven that people are born gay, and, and really we haven't, as we looked at many of these studies, we haven't shown that people are born gay. We've shown that there might be a biological component to it, as there might be also an environmental component, but we haven't pe shown that people are born gay, because if we have proven that people are born gay, we should be able to go into a hospital of newborn babies, and um, just as we can pick out the boy babies and the girl babies, we should be able to also pick out the gay babies and the straight babies. But we just can't do that. Uh, you know, a doctor giving birth to uh, a baby, you know, instead of saying, oh, look, it's a boy, it's a girl, you know, we should be able to say, oh, it's gay, it's straight. But, you know, obviously, we are not able to do that yet. We have not proven that people um, are born gay. It's, we haven't, you know, the scientific evidence is just not there. Then people say, well, if people aren't born gay, well, then isn't it just a choice? Um, unfortunately, I think both of them, uh, it's the wrong dichotomy. Both of them are incorrect. You know, just because it's not a choice doesn't then mean that it's that it's people are born that way um, but uh, I think when it comes to a choice um, I've yet to meet anyone who actually chose to have gay feelings I didn't wake up one day and say oh you know what I think I'm gonna you know choose to be gay or choose to have these feelings no that that's not how it happens as Christians we know the choice comes in you know we have a choice to respond to these issues um, now, you know, with that said, kind of critiquing those, I want us to now look at theology. Um, and what does theology have to say about this? When it comes down to it, I mean, if we, uh, those of us who hold to a traditional view of sexuality, if we believe that homosexuality is a sin, I think it's then important for us to look at it in that context. What does the doctrine of sin uh, have to say about this? The theology of sin. Uh, for one, we see that, uh, you know, Psalm 51 says that we're all born with a sinful nature. All of us are born, you know, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So all of us are born with a sinful nature. Um, and I think that there's also some genetic influences to sin, uh, such as alcoholism. Um, this quote here says, Genetic factors appear to play a significant role in alcoholism and may account for half of the total risk for alcoholism. The role that genetics plays in alcoholism is complex and is likely that many different genes are involved. Uh, then it goes on to say, to develop alcoholism, other factors usually come into play, including biology, genetics, culture, and psychology. Uh, and so I think that in the same way, sexuality, it has all these multiple factors as well. Some people even say that obesity has... Um, some biological factors. Violent behavior might be. I think there was a, um, an article that I read in Time magazine that said infidelity might even have a genetic factor. So that, does that mean that we just kind of say, well, then our, my genes made me do it? You know, or as Christians, are we still bound to live um, not according to our feelings or even according to our bi biology, but according to our faith in Christ? Just because there might be a biological component, does that then mean that uh, it makes it morally permissible? Um, and in addition, 
um, I believe, or, or in conclusion, I believe homosexuality most likely has multiple factors and influences. Multiple factors, some that are biological and some that are environmental. Um, and, you know, we just haven't proven that it is one or the other, but it's not nature or nurture, but I think it's nature and nurture. It's both and. Um, and as we actually look at science and many of the organizations, we find that they agree with that as well. Uh, the American Psychological Association, which is not a Christian organization, which is not a conservative organization, they have said this. They say some people believe that sexual orientation is innate and fixed, such as Oprah and Lady Gaga. Uh, <laughs> however, sexual orientation develops across a person's lifetime. I mean, that's coming from the American Psychological Association, and I can agree with that. Um, this is another quote from uh, the American... Uh, Psychological Association, a longer one. Therefore, uh, there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, or gay or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, and developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. This is another quote from the AAP, which is the American Academy of Pediatrics, also an association that um, is not um, Christian uh, or not even necessarily, I would say, conservative. But they said this, uh, they said sexual orientation probably is not determined by any one factor, but by a combination of genetic, hormonal, and environmental influences. And this is another quote that I really like because it comes from the Association of Gay and Lesbian Psychiatrists. Um, and they say, no one knows what causes heterosexuality, homosexuality, or bisexuality. There is a renewed interest in searching for biological etiologies or causes for homosexuality. However, to date, there are no replicated scientific studies supporting any specific biological etiology for homosexuality. This is, uh, and then two more quotes from uh, two um, scientists, one in uh, Chicago area at Northwestern and the other one at University of Illinois, and they said it is more likely that there are several genes that interact with non-genetic factors, including psychological and social influences to determine sexual orientation. Um, and then finally, this uh, quote from Gene Robinson, as much as people like to divide themselves into nature or nurture, what genes actually do in the brain reflects the interaction between hereditary and environmental information. And so I hope that you see, you know, this question that we ask, is it nature or nurture? I think we're asking the wrong question. It's not, is it nature or nurture? But I think that it is nature and nurture. That's, that is what science and I think even our theology is pointing us to. And so conclusion, why in the world do we put so much emphasis? And this is why it's kind of sometimes interesting because I sometimes struggle with even talking about this because I hate to even put too much emphasis upon the etiology of homosexuality because I wonder why are we putting all this emphasis upon this? You know, why are we putting all this emphasis upon what is the cause of homosexuality? Because I've never seen a, a talk upon or a whole conference on, you know, what is the cause of gossip? 
You know, what is the cause of pornography or lust or anger? You know, I mean, if we're spending all this time trying to look at the cause of these things, you know, uh, you know, on homosexuality, we should look at the cause of the other things that we all struggle with. Because when we do, I think that, un- you know, unfortunately lifts up homosexuality to be this, you know, you know, crazy different thing. And I don't think it is. But also, I think it's based upon a faulty premise, premise, which I mentioned earlier. Because I believe, as Christians, we think somehow if we can find the cause, we can find the cure. Somehow, if we can find the cause, we can find the cure. But I think that's based on a faulty ideology that, that I think kind of tries to shift the responsibility on, upon something else. Because really, ultimately, the problem is not bad upbringing, or the problem isn't bad environment, or even bad genes. Really, the main problem, it's a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual issue, which does have biological and genetic ramifications, but if the problem is a spiritual problem, then guess what? The answer is a spiritual answer as well. And that's why, coming back full circle back to what I talked about in the morning, the answer is Jesus. The answer is the gospel. I mean, it talks about, you know, if our focus needs to be Christ-centered and grounded in the gospel, because, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, do not be conformed to this world, but renewed, uh, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You know, I've been crucified with Christ, and that it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So ultimately, the answer needs to be the gospel. The answer is focusing upon how we are renewed and transformed. Certainly it has ramifications in uh, how we're raised, but ultimately the goal needs to be being renewed and putting on the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of life. Father, we praise you that in the midst of this issue where there's so much differing opinions, Lord God, we can find clarity, not only in your word, but through science. Lord, it's not that science contradicts your word, but Lord, if we look at science, if we look at your word correctly and and understand how we are created and what it means to be human, to have a sinful nature, but created in the image of God, Lord, that we know, Father, that ultimately our answer is Jesus. Father, thank you, though, for science, and thank you for psychology and for counseling, Lord God, as those things all help us. And Lord, help us to realize, though, ultimately, that really it is living a transformed life that is more important than anything else. Father, help us to continue to proclaim that message to every person, not just on this issue of homosexuality. Father, we praise you, we love you, And we ask this in the powerful name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you so much. And thank you, Christopher. He's been a trooper. He has one more talk. 
seven o'clock right here one that he's very passionate about and i think is very relevant homosexuality and the christian campus so i would really encourage you guys come back bring a friend two three or four um, and he'll be back at seven thank you so much